You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. You can be seated and good morning to you all. In the upper left-hand corner of the screen behind me, you see the biblical reference of Psalm chapter 11, verse 3. And it is there that the psalmist says, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? So this summer so far, the beginning of the summer, and now we're looking at these different foundations in scripture, things that we can stand upon as, as believers, things that we need to understand, things that are settled and set in our own lives as followers of Christ. Last couple of weeks, we have looked at the foundation of repentance, uh, the foundation of singing, the foundation of the in-between, in-between salvation and, and heaven, the foundation of hope, the foundation of hospitality, the, the foundation of victory. And today we're going to look at the foundation of Christ's return. The, the, the set foundation, because if we're unsettled on this or this foundation begins to give way, what are we as the righteous people to do? And so let us understand fully this morning this foundation upon which we can stand that Jesus Christ will come again. Now today I want you to know I'm going to teach a little bit more than I preach, which usually means you have to have a pen out or pencil or there should be a pen in front of you or lipstick, whatever you have that you want to write with this morning. Uh, But also this morning, I'm going to be a little bit more systematic in in my teaching. In other words, we're going to look at this topic through several books in the Bible about the return of Christ. All that to say, just keep your fingers nimble this morning. We'll be in a lot of different books kind of turning together and seeing again all throughout scripture, the New Testament about the return, the foundation of the return of Christ. One of the greatest promises that Jesus gave us is found in John chapter 14 when he said, I will come again. That the context there is that Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me for in my father's house, there are many mansions. If this were not so, I would tell you, but I go there even now to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. This is a promise of Jesus. And you know what? Every one of his promises so far have been fulfilled. This is actually the only promise in all of scripture that we're still waiting on today. The return of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will come again. And and the angels, they confirmed that. You remember in Acts chapter one, when when Jesus was ascending to, to be seated at the right hand of the father, the disciples were just kind of staring up into the sky as they were standing there on the Mount of Olives. They're looking up there and, and two men, two angels come to them and say, oh, why are you just standing here looking up? He's going to come back in the same way. In fact, Zechariah chapter 14 says he'll come back in the same place. When the feet of Jesus hit the earth for the first time, they will land on the Mount of Olives and the mountain will split into two. So angels themselves have confirmed that Christ is coming back. Not only the angels have confirmed this, but every New Testament author also has referenced or spoken to the fact of the promise of the return of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Uh, Peter writes about it. James writes about it. Jude writes about it. We understand all throughout Scripture, the New Testament inspired by different, uh, uh, different authors, inspired by the same Holy Spirit, confirm over and over again that Jesus is coming again. And so this morning, instead of asking when that's going to happen, because that would be an exercise in futility because only God knows what's going to happen. Even Jesus said only the Father knows this. And instead of talking this morning like how it's going to unfold, like what's going to happen in in the preceding days, the preceding seasons, instead of asking how it's going to unfold, because brilliant theologians differ hugely on this. There's one thing we can find out, what's going to happen when he comes. 
I mean, it's remarkably clear. There's no muddy water there at all in the scripture. What's gonna happen when Jesus comes? And so if you're a note taker, you can write some of these things down. If you're just gonna kind of watch with the screen and watch this unfold this morning, what's gonna happen when Jesus returns? Here's the first thing. Jesus will judge everyone who ever lived. When Jesus returns, there's gonna be judgment. When Jesus returns, he's gonna return as the rightful judge. Jesus will judge everyone who ever lived. God gave Jesus the right to judge because because Christ alone is sinless, fully good, and qualified. So God has vested into his son, Jesus. He has placed responsibility in his son, Jesus, to be the rightful judge. God gave Jesus that right to judge because Christ alone is sinless, fully good, and qualified. We don't have to turn there, but look on the screen behind me in John chapter 5, verse 26. John writes, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of God. You see, it's God who has given the son, Jesus, the right to judge. Why is it that he is fit and only he is fit for that role? Because he, again, is is perfect. He is absolutely sinless. He is altogether good. He is the only one qualified and is able to judge. When people feel like they're being judged today, when you might feel like you're being judged today, what what is it in human nature? What is it that that we cry out? Who, Who gave you the right to judge me? Well, if we say that to Jesus, Jesus can say, my dad did. The God of heaven and earth, he has given me the right to execute judgment, to be the qualified, fit, sinless, perfect, only qualified judge. The other thing that we say when we feel like we're judged, when people feel like they're judged, what do we say? You know, who, who are you? Do you think you're perfect? Do you think you're right in all of your ways? Don't you make mistakes also? We can't say that to Jesus. He is magnificent in his perfection. This is what gives him the right and only Christ the right to be the fit judge on that day. And so when Christ returns, Jesus will judge everyone who's ever lived. There's a second thing I want you to see. Christ's judgment will be fully and finally just. Fully just. Finally just. There is inside of all of us in this house this morning a desire and even a love and a longing for justice. When a criminal steals something and they are caught and they're they're given a reprimand or prison time or they have to pay back. There is inside of us kind of this sense of, I, I, I like justice. I want justice. When a criminal is caught and they have to, to pay out their, their, their penalty of the justice, there is something inside of us. We long for justice. You know where that comes from? We're made in the image of God and God is a God of justice. You know where else I want justice? H-E-B. At the 15 item line. <laughs> One day your pastor's gonna snap. I'm, I'm just gonna snap. And you're gonna hear my voice in HUE going 17, 18, 19, 20. And just know you'll probably have a new pastor that next Sunday because I've, I've lost it. Like I want so badly for the manager of HUB to bring some justice to the situation, to run over there and go, ma'am, I am so sorry. It was a 15 item only lane and you brought 23 items up. You're, you're banished, banished from HEB for the next 12 months. You're gonna have to go to Walmart on Saturday morning only in Waco and shop there for a while because I only, we only need 15 items. I long for justice in the world and HEB. 15 item line. 
I guess that's the nature of God. Is I mean, I love justice. I want justice. We love justice. God is a just God. And when he comes back, listen, every wrong will be righted. Because his justice, it's going to be full and it's going to be final. And everything that we feel like might be unjust today, I want you to understand it. When Jesus comes, there'll be a full and final justice by a fit judge. Here's the third thing I want you to see under that. Jesus knows all things and all people and his judgments will be accurate. They'll be right. There'll be no judicial mistakes that day. There'll be no one who is actually innocent being called guilty. There'll be no mistakes from, from the judge's bench that day. There'll be no poor judgments. I mean, so many people in our world today, it just seems like they're getting away with such vile things. And certainly you and I feel this sometimes. We see the, the violent, the vile, the evil. We see them succeed. We see them prosper. And we wonder, God, why is it that they're doing so well in life? Why, why is it they prosper? They succeed so much. And yet they're so violent. They're so evil in their speech and their life and their conduct. I just want you to know one day when Christ comes back, he will make judgments and those judgments will be accurate. They'll be just. They'll be final. They'll be full. There's coming a day that we'll all stand before Jesus. And our lives, all lives, will be their center stage in the radiating spotlight of his brilliance. And he will judge fairly and accurately. And when he judges, there will be justice. Full justice and final justice. Here's the second thing I want you to see this morning. There's a judgment, let's get more specific now, there's a judgment for non-Christians. There's this very specific judgment for non-Christians. So with your copy of God's word, let's find this together. It's the very last book of the New Testament, last book of the Bible. Go with me, please, to the book of Revelation, and let's go to chapter 20 together. Revelation chapter 20, and then be ready to do some turning the pages the next few moments. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, there is a judgment for non-believers for those who have rejected the grace of Jesus, those who have pushed back on the rescue and the authority of God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John is writing the book of Revelation. God has given him the opportunity to, to kind of see what is to come, uh, to be, if you will, fast forwarded into this time of, of judgment. Here we are in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And here's what John wrote. Then I saw, it was a great white throne and him, God himself who was seated on, on it. And from him, the earth and sky just fled away and no place was found for them. In other words, there was no hiding again from that spotlight of the judgment of Christ. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what was done. This is the great white throne judgment. Let me say it again. It is for those who have pushed back on the rescuing grace of Jesus. Those who have pushed back against his king authority and said, I want to be in charge of my own life. I'll live life in my own way. I understand today when we talk about hell in church, I understand that's an unpopular concept in our country and sadly, a increasingly unpopular topic in the pulpit. But consider this with me. Jesus himself spoke about hell more than anybody else in scripture. 
Jesus himself spoke about a very real place, not just an idea, not just some ethereal force, but a very real place. Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone else in all of scripture. If you're here this morning thinking, I I, I don't like the concept of hell. Well, good, don't go there. (laughs) That's the big idea of the cross of Jesus, that there is a rescue, there is a way. Jesus is that way to eternal life out of a very real place that Jesus spoke of called hell. Jesus stands ready to rescue you from the wrath of God. And there's another topic we don't like to talk about very much or don't like to hear today. But let me tell you this, you can write this in your notes. The concept of God's wrath is mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. 600 times that God is a God of justice and there is a wrath, there is an anger against those who have pushed back against his authority, those who have rejected him. And I understand there's a pushback in our own lives against wrath today. And I understand wrath is a messy thing. It goes against our American concept of God just being kind of a kind old grandfather up there somewhere. There's actually denominations and churches that have changed the words to one of our favorite songs here at Highland in Christ Alone. The, the second stanza, the second verse, they have changed that to, to on the cross as Jesus died. We sing the wrath of God was satisfied, but some churches don't wanna sing about the wrath of God being satisfied in the, in the sac- sacrificial death, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. So they have changed it to, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And let me tell you, the love of God was magnified at the cross, but not to the absence of the wrath of God being absorbed by Jesus Christ on our behalf. Wrath is mentioned in the Bible. And it's something we have to consider else. Why did Christ die? There's a day of wrath for those who reject him. Your Bible right now, I think, is in the book of Revelation. Would you go to the left to another R book and go to the book of Romans with me? Romans chapter two. Let's go to verse four together. Romans chapter two, verse four. Once you get to Romans, stay there. We'll be kind of around there, then back to Romans. So just just be ready to keep up. Romans chapter two, verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's the rejection. But because of your hard and impenitent or non-repentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he'll render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be, and here's the words again, wrath and fury. You really can't redact wrath out of the Bible. You really can't edit this out. Over and over again, over 600 times, we are told, Old and New Testament alike, of the concept of the wrath of God pressed against, pushing against those who live lives of unrighteousness, pressed against those, falling down on those who reject the truth of the gospel of Jesus. So Jesus is coming to to judge everyone. There's a judgment for non-Christians. Here's the third thing I want you to see this morning. There's a judgment for Christians. I always see, I feel like I get a few surprised looks when I say that, but there will be a judgment even for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And here's what you can write in your notes. This judgment declares what reward that Christian will receive in heaven. It declares to that, that Christian, here is what you'll receive. In other words, that's not a decision of heaven or hell for those who are in Christ who will stand before him. That's already been determined for those who are in Christ. All of your sins, sons and daughters of God, have, have been forgiven completely, thrown as far as the east is from the west. God remembers your sin no more. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than your sin. And so your sins have been completely covered, but there's still a time of judgment. What will, be, what will happen on that day? We'll be given rewards and crowns. There's five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. There's the crown of righteousness, there's the crown of glory, there's the crown of life, there's a crown of rejoicing, and fifthly, there's the incorruptible crown. And I'll go on record unapologetically saying, I want them all. I want them all. Because I, like the saints of Revelation chapter four, I want to have something to throw down at the feet of Jesus when I see him. So on that day of judgment for Christians, again, it's not heaven and hell in the balance. It's what rewards will we be given that day. And maybe some Sunday soon, I'll walk through how we get those five crowns and where those five crowns are mentioned in scripture. But that's what we're doing on that day. God is giving us through Christ Jesus, our rewards, our crowns. What else happens for the, that day of the judgment of Christians? You're in the book of Romans. Go two books over to the right. Go to second Corinthians with me because Paul talks about this. What it's gonna be like for believers on that day when we stand in the judgment of God. Second Corinthians chapter five is verse nine. If you'll go there. This is the seat of mercy where we come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes to us, the Spirit writes to Highland. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim, our desire, our goal, the target is to please God. For we must all, written to believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one, there it is again, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. Here, here's what's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God, he's going to tell his people, he's going to tell us how we did. It's going to be a day of performance evaluation for us, a day of appraisal. God is going to tell us how we did, and we should make it our aim, then Paul says, to please him and to live for that one day. Because all of us believers, we will also stand in the radiating spotlight of the brilliance of Jesus. He's gonna judge us accurately as well. Praise God, not for our sin, but for what we did in this life. Again, let me make you understand, hell is not in the balance, but the giving of rewards, the giving of the crowns, that's what's in the balance on that day. Something for us to offer back to the Lord. I'm assuming like all of you, I want to joyfully enter heaven one day and ready for a full review of my life. Others, I have to believe, are hesitant about that day, even as sons and daughters. They're hesitantly thinking about, about what that might look like to have their whole life in review from God. Let me tell you again, you will not be cast away from God once you are in Christ Jesus, but there's still an opportunity for God to judge us on how we lived this life. And so we'll stand before him and be given a full appraisal. It makes me wonder if some are joyful or some are hesitant on that day. Scripture says we should keep Christ always then on the horizon, always our aim to please him, always our focus. I, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we need to live in light of that day of judgment. 
We're gonna have to unpack everything. Here's what I did with my time. Here's what I did with my money. Here's what I did with the spiritual gifts your Holy Spirit gave me. And here's what I did with my treasures. Here's what I did with my calendar. Here's what I did with my life, oh God. And then the rewards or the lack thereof will be handed out. Here's the fourth thing and really the last thing I want you to see this morning. All things will be restored. Man, I know number one, two, and three is pretty heavy. A lot of judgment, a lot of wrath, a lot of fury, a lot of radiating spotlights, a lot of accuracy, a lot of justice there. But I want you to understand when Christ comes, all things will be restored. How many presidential elections and petitions and recalls and wars fought and educational reform and social programs and environmental agendas has this country endured thinking we'll just get better next year. Friends, can I tell you, it's not gonna get better until Jesus comes back. Next year's not gonna be better. Two years won't be better with the same president, new president, reform. Things will not be better until Jesus comes and restores all things. And I'll tell you why. Because sin has affected everything. We live in a cursed and crooked world. A world of the hated and the hater. The oppressor and the oppressed. A world of wrong and the wrongdoer. A world of crime and the criminal. A world of of, of the abused and the abuser. I don't have to stay on this point long at all. If you have ever read anything happening in our lives and in the world in the last several days, you know we live in a crooked, cursed world. And it's just spiraling out of control until the king returns and he redeems all things. He restores all things. Here's the first thing that's gonna happen in restoration. The return of Christ restores his creation. I mean, creation itself is longing for the Son of God to return because ever since Genesis chapter three, creation itself has also been subject to the futility of our ways. Uh, Let's see this together. Your second Corinthians, so go back to the left one more time, back to the book of Romans and go to Romans chapter eight. This is my favorite chapter in the New Testament. Romans chapter eight and look at verse 19 with me. The return of Christ also restores the very creation that God gave to humanity. Look at Romans chapter eight, verse 19. I'll try to unpack a little of this for you. For, for the creation, so things that God created that are seen, that are unseen for creation, it also, it waits with this eager longing, this eager yearning for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it. Why? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, creation itself longs to be redeemed because the earth groans with with earthquakes and tornadoes and, and fire and drought and death. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they not only, not only did it cost them the garden, it also cost the garden. Remember, not only now will will childbearing be painful for women, not only now will men toil, but the earth itself will be disfigured and scorched and worked and thorns would infest the ground. So creation itself, all that God has made outside of you and I, outside of humanity, 
It also has been pressed down ever since Genesis chapter three, when sin entered the world and creation itself is groaning. It is longing for the day of redemption that it might be restored also. Not only will the return of Christ restore his creation, but the return of Christ will restore his people. We will be restored to a new place with a new life. And I want you to see this. This will be the last place we turn to this morning. It's in Revelation chapter 21. So go back to the very end of the Bible again, Revelation 21, almost the very last chapter of your scriptures. Return of Christ restores his creation. The return of Christ restores his people. Revelation chapter 21, verse four. I believe the most beautiful poetic portion of the New Testament. This was happening in the new heaven, the new earth, the kingdom of Jesus. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. And true. This new heaven, this new earth that we're going to is a curse free world. And I want you to see three quick things about it. Number one, it's a crying free world, according to Revelation chapter 21, a crying free world. But what is it that you cry about? What is it that makes you weep? There are so many gut wrenching, horrific things that happen to those that we love. There's so many gut wrenching, horrific things that happen to you. It causes us to cry, to weep, to hurt, to moan. And it says here in Revelation that there is a crying free world that believers in Christ were, were headed to a home where there'll be no more tears, no more crying. Scripture also says that we're headed to a world that's death free, a death free world. Is there anything more agonizing in life than watching death approach somebody? Is there anything that's more gut-wrenching, watching cancer slowly take someone from us? Is there anything more gut-wrenching, horrific, grief-producing than getting that call at nighttime that someone that you love was killed in a wreck? Death steals. And it has stolen some from this congregation. It has stolen your loved ones the new heaven and the new earth. It is a place where there is no death. Don't you look forward to a world where there's no cemeteries, no obituaries, no funeral homes, no hospitals, no chemo. There's just no more death. And believers in Christ, we're headed to that home where death will be no more. And thirdly, scripture tells us here, we're headed to a place that's a pain-free world. No chronic pain, no economic pain, no pain of loss, no pain of separation, no physical pain, no, no pain of memories of, of things that were done to you, no pains of, of memories of things that you did, no emotional pain, no pain of betrayal, no pain of loss. Believers in Christ were headed to a home where there is no pain. When Christ comes back, he will restore his creation. He will restore his people. Wow. I look forward to that day. What do we do between now and that day? Let me wrap it up with, with these thoughts. Here's what we can do. Here's how we can live our lives. Number one, let's revere him. Between now and the return of the king, let's, 
Let's revere him. I didn't have time this morning to walk through Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 20, because here in the book of Revelation, we see this incredible picture of Jesus in that book. He's on a, he's on a white horse, and, and the name of Jesus is faithful and true. He's the righteous judge. He's the messianic warrior that takes care of and wipes out all the enemies of God. He sees all. He knows all. He judges all. He, he's crowned with diadems. He's shrouded with mystery, and he comes to conquer God's enemy, and as he comes, he produces the revelation of God's word and it sets all of history on a completely different course. He has his name on his thigh and on his robe, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he rides down in victory, a conquering King. Let us revere and fear this Jesus. That's what we can do. There is nothing boring about a conquering King on a white horse. We need to bow down and revere this Jesus. No more half-baked adoration. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Let's revere him. Here's the second thing I think we can do. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice in him. He is the conquering, returning king. I mean, it should be reason for singing. It should be reason for celebration. It should be reason for the roaring of celebration of Highland. Every time we come together, that Jesus is coming back. Let us revere him. Let us also rejoice in him. This should be cause for joy and delight and celebration. Every time we consider that Christ is coming again, let's rejoice in him. And lastly, let's be ready for him. Let us, like Paul, let this be our aim to please the Lord knowing that we will stand before the spotlight of Jesus one day. Let us make this our target, our passion, every breath. I desire to honor the Lord. How do we do this? By remaining faithful to Christ in the middle of a fallen world. How do we remain ready for him? By enduring hardship and trusting God in the middle of suffering. How is it that we prepare ourselves with readiness for the return of Jesus by proclaiming Jesus Christ in the neighborhood and the nations? This is what we're called to do. Let us revere him. Let us rejoice in him. Let us, O Highland, be ready for him. So what about you? Have you responded to the kindness of God? And what about you? Have you accepted this rescue? Or do you continue to reject his grace, his love, his reaching? I would plead with every child and every adult here today to not leave this place until you have given your life to Jesus. Who else is worthy of it? To place your faith in Jesus. He is showing you his kindness today. And hear me clearly. He is coming again. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, we believe this is the only promise that is yet to be fulfilled that we're waiting for even today. Maybe this afternoon, maybe before next Sunday's gatherings. We wanna be prepared. We wanna live in light of the return of Christ. Keeping Christ always at the horizon of our lives. That this is who we're looking to. 
He's the author of our faith. He's the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. And we look forward to the return of the King when all the wrongs will be righted. We look forward to the return of the King to usher us to a new heaven, a new earth. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no crying, no death. A curse-free world. Until that day, oh God, give us the grace to remain daily in you. To stand in your grace during the middle of suffering and hardship and difficulty and pain and loss. Give us the grace to live in light of the return of Jesus. It's in that name that we pray and we believe. Amen.